Hey everybody, it's Bone here, and this is part of a series of conversations that I started along with my writing, which you can find at Decide Nothing on Substack. And I'm very happy to say that the podcast now has a life of its own as brothers and teachers. The mission of the show is to honor people, especially men, who embody positive presence and who have been teachers, who I love and respect, and who I want the world to get to know more deeply. Today I'm speaking with Chris Ryan, who is a prolific writer and podcaster and just all around a very interesting cat. Chris is the author of two books, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death, as well as a very active substack. And of course, he's also the host of a long-running podcast called Tangentially Speaking. I came across Sex at Dawn myself several years ago, and, and that book has played a big part in cracking open my own thinking about love, sex, and relationship, as it has for many, many others. More recently, I took the opportunity to meet up with Chris at a retreat that he co-hosted in Montana, where we connected as fellow writers, van travelers, hot spring aficionados, and former but not current users of psychedelic substances. While we were together up there, Chris mentioned that he and his partner Anya would be spending the winter in Crestone, Colorado, and they invited me to stop by sometime. And so now, just a few months later, I find myself recording this interview in his little office studio slash guest bedroom. And so, for one thing, I think it's fair to say that I've been in bed with Chris Ryan Especially since I'm working on building a third career as a writer, I really value Chris's life experience as a working artist who's met with some real success. And even more importantly, he's someone who embodies warmth, curiosity, irreverence, adventure, equanimity, poise, and openness, just to name a few of the values that I see and share. Just a reminder that anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. And if you're catching this before the end of 2022, I have a special discount offer out there right now for 33% off the cost of becoming a paid subscriber. So why not do that right now at decidenothing.substack.com slash subscribe. I'm very grateful to Chris and Anya for the invitation to visit with them in Crestone and for his support of my efforts with this podcast and as a writer. As you listen, you might scan the questions at the bottom of the show notes or consider just one, which is, is there anything about yourself that you have come out about or that you haven't but could or would like to embody more visibly? And now, Please join me in welcoming Chris Ryan to Brothers and Teachers. Chris, it's so cool to visit you here and to see your place. And something that I've often been struck with lately is just the power of invitation. Mm. And I, I try to make it a point these days to, you know, invite people into parts of my life. And so I really appreciate the, the invitation to visit you here. Yeah. Glad you came through. So I thought we'd start with a question that often occurs to me, which is, is there something that you've learned lately that has changed the way that you live, essentially? Well, we were talking last night about the fact that uh, I stopped drinking alcohol about three months ago. Mm. Uh, I think that's sort of enigmatic in the sense that 
Uh, it doesn't feel like a big change now, but before I stopped, it felt like it would be a big change. Like it was something I thought about a fair bit. It was something that sort of was swirling around in my head and I was feeling like, you know, I should really stop drinking. I, mm. I should, or at least take a break. You know, I'm drinking every day. I know, you know, I don't think I'm abusing alcohol. I, I've, I'm not having traffic accidents or, you know, getting into fights or embarrassing myself or losing jobs. You know, none of those things that that tend yeah. to align with having a problem um, but I felt like it was a problem merely in the sense that it was something that I wanted to reduce, but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. So it felt like in that sense, it was a problem. It was, it was weakening me because it was like something I would say, you know, I should, I'm going to, I'm going to not drink for a week or I'm going to take a few days and just not drink. And then I'd be sitting there with friends and they'd say you want a beer and I'd be like oh what the hell sure yeah I'll have a beer you know and I kept it was never a big deal yeah. um but it was just sort of chipping away at that sense of like I'm in control of what I'm doing um so that that's interesting and then mm. you know we when we came back to the states we we're like okay we're going to the states you know, it's in my life, I'm bad at making like daily incremental steps. I'm better at making big structural steps. Yeah, I'd say the same. Yeah. So, you know, I, I thought, let's just take advantage of the fact that we're, you know, going from one continent to another. We're, we've been traveling for a year. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going back and we're going to, you know, sort of change our lives in, in major structural ways. So let's not drink. Um, and also I, I was feeling like, ah, come on, I'm dragging Anya into this. Like she doesn't really drink. If she's on her own, she doesn't use alcohol. But, you know, if I'm always popping open a bottle of wine and mm -hmm. she joins me and, and you know, it's not really helping her. And yeah. anyway, so I did stop and it's really, I, I don't miss it. it. There's no, like I said to you last night, I wasn't even getting a buzz from it. I, I don't, mm -hmm. it was all just sort of downside. Um, yeah. Except the flavor. I like the flavor of beer. I like the flavor of wine, you know? So what's changed in the positive? I mean, because it's, you know, as opposed to, okay, so you're not missing it. You know, there's right. not, not the negative, but how do you feel? Well, I mean, I got to be honest. I don't wake up feeling like, oh, I've got so much more energy now or everything's better. Like, I don't, no. <laughs> I, I mean, that's that was always a problem. The problem was that it wasn't a problem. Yeah. You know, and it's the same thing with exercise. Like I have friends who are like, man, if I don't run, I feel like shit. I'm like if I don't run, I feel fine. Mm. I don't need to, you know, like Joe Rogan, if he doesn't fucking work out, the demons yeah. accumulate and I, I don't have those demons. So I don't work out. I, yeah, I, whatever. I feel Interesting, fine. Yeah. So for me, the problem is the lack of problem mm. is there's, there's no driving need to work out to not drink to you know whatever it is to to write every day or to i've seen this before you must suffer from a lack of trauma <laughs> i think that's what it is <laughs> it's true yeah yeah um no i mean i had a great i've thought about that a fair bit like i had a great childhood 
my parents loved me. They told me they this loved the me. Problem. Yeah. They loved each other. You know, nobody, I didn't get bullied or beat up very much. You know, I, uh, girls were nice to me. Oh, man. So you didn't really need to drink. So that. No. Right. So that for it didn't get bad enough that you really needed to stop. Right. But you still felt it's clearly, it sounds this, you know, I mean, often people talk about cognitive dissonance, right? Which is just when you, you know, you become aware of feeling differently than you are being in some way. Right. Mm. And it sounds like you became aware that, well, you just didn't want to drink anymore or maybe, or at least you wanted to, you know, experience what it felt like not to. Well, I, I wanted, I wanted to clearly know that I was in charge. Yeah. I feel like these things are like, it's kind of like a relationship with a dog. Like it works well when the dog knows you're the boss. Totally, yeah. Things get weird when it's not clear who's the boss. Yeah. And the dog, you're actually doing the dog a favor by being very clear about who's the boss, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like it's that way with habits. Yeah. Um, there's this Spanish proverb, what starts out as cobwebs become becomes a chain, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it starts off really easy. It's just a little thing that you do every day and you like it and it's not a problem and your friends do it. And then you find that it's very hard to stop doing that little thing, you know? Yeah. And... Uh, so for me, it's just like, I don't have an addictive personality. I've done lots of drugs, but I've never really had a problem with drugs. And the thing with the alcohol, with the wine and the beer was just like, ah, I'm getting kind of fat. You read these things like, oh, you should, you know, and a man shouldn't have more than, you know, 20 drinks a week or whatever. And I'm like, ah, 20 drinks a week. Let's see if I have four drinks a night and seven, you know, that's, that's, that's pushing 30. Right yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Well, that's a lot. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a lot of anything. And also my dad had liver cancer uh-huh. when he was about my age. Yeah. And so there's a, you know, maybe a genetic thing that, to watch out for. Mm. Anyway, so that was the issue. It was just like, eh, this dog doesn't know I'm in charge. And actually, I don't know that I'm in charge. Yeah, well, that's this seems like the source of it. You know, people often, I mean, just to speak from my own experience, like, as I stopped drinking alcohol about five years ago um, with some exceptions. And, you know, so it's, it's not a um, like a do or die either or hundred percent thing for me. Um, although these days I don't drink at all. Um, and I felt the same way that I didn't really have, you know, a problem with a capital P, but I was increasingly aware that, yeah, the dog was in charge. Right. Um, or I wasn't sure that I was in charge. Right. And certainly for me, on top of that, it was very clear that I also was suffering, you know, certainly negative psychological effects from just the ongoing depressive effect. Yeah. You know, the ongoing depressive effect. Point being that the best thing that I've heard anyone say to me about this question of whether there's a problem or not is that it doesn't matter so much about whether you think there's a problem because often. You don't, even though there is. It's more whether it comes to mind. And if it comes to mind, if you feel like changing, well, then that's reason enough. Well, we were last night we were talking about like both of us had motorcycles when we were younger and 
have some experience with paragliding and uh, other kind of potentially risky behaviors that as a young man seem not very (laughs) risky. And then you get older and, and you realize like, I had a lot of close calls on that motorcycle. Maybe it's time to step away from that. Maybe, you know, like I think as you get older, or at least it's happened with me and it seems to have happened with you, you life is full of risk. You're always at the poker table, you know, they're, but, but you learn when to cash in your chips and step away. Yeah. Well, you know, we're just talking about another scenario of that, that type, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a bit of wisdom, you know, with age that, that just comes into it. Um, but also, I mean, for me, at least it took me a long time to, just get happier hmm. um you know as kind of a at a baseline level and and more stable psychologically and to you know see the beauty of life on an everyday basis um and it, it and, and also um getting more physically active for me was a big part of it too um, all of those things, you know, began to contributed to me just feeling better on a day to day basis to the point that, you know, drinking alcohol, just for one example, because there are other things, too, but the, to, to the point that drinking alcohol interfered with that. Mm. It used to be a thing that, you know, was fun and made me, I thought, feel good, you know, I enjoyed it, you know, but then as again, I began to feel better sort of without it, you know, again, the alcohol interfered with that. Right. Um, and I found that I didn't like the effect of taking me out of the self that I was. Right. Uh, whereas earlier in life, again, my experience was I just didn't have as much of a self. And so, you know, drinking and other drugs and, 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 you know, flying, halfway around the world to have sex with some person I met on the internet or whatever, you know, it was kind of a substitute for an inner experience that I just didn't, mm. you know, I didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think we become attached to habits and techniques and, and behaviors that work for us. And it makes it difficult to realize when they stop working. Yes. And to let it go, you know, so much of life is, you know, I think breathing is such a great metaphor for life. Like you, you need to know when to stop breathing in and start breathing out, right? There's no failure in changing. There's no failure in relationships that have run their course and letting go of them or music that you used to love when you were younger and you don't really listen to it anymore like that doesn't mean you were wrong then right you know like i used to listen to a lot of rush when i was 18 i don't listen to rush anymore it doesn't mean i rush is great music but i mean rush is okay but if you listen to a lot of yes that would have that would have been wrong roundabout <laughs> i listened to over and over again but yeah i mean i think you know taking that music as a metaphor yeah. i think a lot of people feel like it's a failure to give up and and let go of things that used to work yes you yes know? i because we don't want to age 
age feels aging is like some sort of a surrender and a failure because we live in this youth centric nonsense culture. Well, and we're all going to die and these things that, you know, we work so hard to, to make part of ourselves or to, you know, we work so hard to, to feel like someone. And that is largely made of like the things that we do, you know, um, letting go of something, you know, it can feel like a big loss. Absolutely. And, and, um, especially these things that have their kind of hooks in us. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the, the kind of the idea of an addictive personality. Um, and I've just read a great book on this subject. Um, I may have to fill in her name later, but Maya Salovitz's book, I think it is, uh, Unbroken Brain. <clears throat> right. Where she lays out her thesis that there's no such thing as an addictive personality and that, quote, addiction is a learning process that's been hijacked by some uh, substance or behavior, you know, that has sort of an, creates an artificial stimulus, mm. a stimulus that's, you know, beyond our sort of normal system, right? We learn that these things feel good to us or fill in some part that kind of feels missing. And then, yeah, it's even harder to let go of. Yeah. Um, I've met Maya. Have you? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Fuck, I'm trying to remember Stanton. Oh shit! Stan, he wrote a book called "Love and Addiction" mm. in the '70s. It's a classic. Okay. Um, he introduced me to her, and yeah, yeah, yeah. We had lunch in in New York one time. Uh huh. Addiction is is a really interesting concept. I, I tend to my thinking on this tends to align with Gabor Mate and and. You know, and Stanton Pierce, I think his name is, mm-hmm. um, which is that I don't think the disease model of addiction makes sense. I, yeah, mean, I think it's yeah. disempowering. Totally. I don't think the addiction lies in the substance. I think yeah. it really doesn't. If you have a hole in your psyche that's needs to be filled you could fill it with coke or sex or gambling or alcohol or whatever the fuck it is it jerking off it doesn't really matter what it is the problem is the hole in you yeah um yeah this is what you know she yeah agrees and i mean i i agree too um well and just back to the letting go you know I, i i really uh smiled just hearing you you know, bring that in because for me, like learning to let go of certain things has been just amazing, really like a, like a huge pleasure actually um, to learn to let go, for example, of yeah, motorcycles, skateboards, you know, paragliding most recently, well, alcohol also, you know, but to choose consciously to close a chapter, right? while I still can, so to speak, or not as the result of some catastrophe. Right. Right. But as the result or not as the result of, you know, hitting bottom. I mean, that's part of the problem with this, mm. the, this sort of old school model of, of addiction and alcoholism in particular. Um, um, but to choose consciously to close a chapter in a positive way. 
Right. Well, that's the thing. If you let go, then that's empowering. Yeah. As opposed to having it ripped from your grasp, you know, <laughs> while you're you're screaming and crying. Yeah, there there's something powerful about letting go. There's power in surrender. There's power in in conscious loss. Right? I mean, there I I feel like we've got this culture that that only recognizes half the picture. We have a yes, a culture of attachment. A culture of attachment of of attainment of of um accumulation mm-hmm. of it's all light, there's no dark. There's no it's all inhale, no exhale. It's all yin, no yang, you know? It's like there's no balance and and I think people get so we're we're struggling so much right now with that Mm. uh trying to understand that side of things that we don't look at that that the power in letting go the power in exhalation the power yes. in powerlessness right i mean mm. we don't do nuance very well yeah i just i hear you yeah and i i i just have to say again reflecting on you know some of the the the, the instances where i have been able to consciously choose to let go of things you know i can look back and see the gold right just like when we see the gold in the future kind of you know see something great coming towards us or or feel you know the gold in the present moment well it's so beautiful and powerful to be able to look back kind of over my shoulder and see the gold in the past from something that i did do and was part of me and is no longer, right? But that I left consciously and positively and, you know, is is also still part of me in that way. Right. I mean, you could you could look at relationships, for example. Absolutely. Like people seem to think that if your relationship is changing, because I don't think relationships end really, um, <laughs> but your relationship is changing, that that they need to burn it down. Yeah. They need to like, it, it needs to end in, in fire and screaming and recrimination. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is you're going to carry that around the rest of your life. Why do you want to carry around the ashes? Right. You know, the charred remains of something that was beautiful. You can carry around a beautiful memory of that yeah. relationship. You can, that could be transformed into one of your most precious friendships, you know? Yeah. There's no need to destroy things that you let go of. But I think because we're confused, because we have this understanding, this, this, this misunderstanding that, um, you know, ending is failure, mm. right? Oh, I'm sorry your relationship didn't work out. Right, I know. I'm so you know? sorry to hear that. Yeah. You know, I'm so uh, tired of fucking hearing that. Don't tell me you're out. sorry to yeah. hear that. Like, we're together for 20 years, like, yeah, and we yeah. love each other. That that worked. It's right. still working, you know? Mm-hmm. There's that, I often refer to this uh, press conference that Margaret Mead gave mm. in the 20s. And Margaret Mead, for people who who aren't familiar, was an anthropologist, uh, one of the first female anthropologists who became quite famous. And she wrote about sexuality and sort of uh, questioned the dominant mm-hmm. uh, paradigm of of you know that women don't enjoy sex and all that. 
Anyway, she was a controversial figure, and yeah. and she had uh, I think she was married three times, and each of her husbands was like Gregory Bateson, this famous scientist, and and I forget who the other guys were, but they were like really interesting guys, right? Mm-hmm. And someone said to her at this press conference, like Ms. Dr. Mead, you know, you're talking about relationships and da da da, like, but you've had three failed marriages, like, why should anyone listen to you? And she said, excuse me, all three of those men remain very close friends. They're incredible men. None of those relationships was a failure. Yeah. Right? It's like, how dare you? Something ends. That doesn't mean it's a failure. No, absolutely. Uh, Something changes. It wasn't a failure. Your life goes on and you stop listening to yes. That doesn't mean (laughs) you you wasted all your time listening to yes. Right, right. And the thing is, as if you don't let go, I mean, if you just imagine a hand holding something, yeah, if you don't put it down, then you can't pick up anything else. Absolutely. You've got to like put things down and let them go before you're in a position to pick up something new. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about relationships a bit, something that's also been super interesting to me, my own experience these past several years has been the like the relationship between my relationships with men and my relationships with women and how focusing energy and strengthening my relationships with men, with other men, with my, with friends, with, with colleagues, with, with other men in the world has in turn strengthened, well, my relationship with myself, but also my relationships with, with women. I just wonder, yeah, what your experience is, what connection is there for you? Well, a lot of my closest friend, male friends have been gay. So Hmm. that's a, I don't know if that's like a middle ground, uh, you know, in Mm -hmm. in terms of the spectrum of energies. Um, Mm -hmm. But I found that, uh, those relationships sort of had a, an, an intensity and an openness mm-hmm. that I rarely find with straight men. Yeah. I feel like straight men are fragile in a way, mm. uh, in general, mm. that um, gay men aren't. Mm, tell me, yeah, t- say more about that. I, I think... You know, to be a gay man in America in, in you know, this era means that you have faced a fire. You have faced the possibility of, you know, physical harm, psychological ridicule, possibly losing your family, losing friendships, you know, being um, an object of scorn and, and so on. Um, it's certainly better than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'm 60, so I'm talking about people born in the 60s, and yeah, um, it, it wasn't cool. It wasn't like you know, yeah. No, I grew up in San Francisco. It, it's changed a lot. Yeah, gay culture was always a part of my, you know, my my culture essentially, and and um, yeah, very much aware. Yeah, the 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 edge there. Yeah, yeah. So I just I feel like you know. Uh, they've been through mm-hmm. this experience of um, saying, fuck it, I'm going to be 
authentic. I'm going to be what I am and I'll take whatever consequences come. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an experience that you don't have unless you're forced to. Yeah. It's a defining challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of us skate along without ever having that kind of moment Mm. of truth. Mm. And that allows us to, uh, you know, preserve a lot of inauthenticity in our lives and to become brittle and, you know, overprotected because because we haven't broken things down to the essentials like that. Untempered, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Untempered, that's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the things. Like, in my experience, and I'm not saying all gay men are like this or sure. all straight men are like this, but... Just these guys that I became very close to, mm. there was like a a playfulness and a humor and a goofiness and a mm. like a lack of concern about how this is coming across. Mm. That uh, straight men seem to be so constricted and and like uptight, uptight yeah. <laughs> in there. You know, like oh, I don't want to look gay. Like I don't want to, you know, look like a pussy. I don't want to look weak. I don't want to like, Oh Jesus Christ. Like you're so concerned with how you look yeah. that you're no fun to be with. Yeah. Because you know, every potential for a joke and for playfulness and for weirdness and goofiness and creativity is shut down by your, terror of how you're coming across yeah so uh, i find a lot of straight men are just fucking boring yeah i don't want to talk about sports i don't want to talk about your car i don't want to talk about your fucking biceps and your triceps and how hard you work out and your fucking Mm. alpha brain supplements and like Mm. i don't i just don't give a shit come on Come on, Chris. Alpha Alpha Brain supplements. I mean, I was just going to get to that. Sorry, are they one of your sponsors? <laughs> Fucking, I love it. Alpha Brain supplements. But I let, let me just finish. Yeah, this go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Because totally. it's kind of like something I shouldn't say, which means Perfect. I probably should. I think there's a lot of homoerotic energy. Yes. In this culture of masculinity. Yes. That it's like, I I mean, last time I was on Rogan's show, I gave him some shit about this. And it was like, dude, you spend so much time in the gym with men, surrounded by men. You're a man's man. What does that mean? Yeah. Like, I like women. Yeah. I like gay dudes. Mm -hmm. Of of the, like, women, gay dudes, straight dudes. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, I would prefer to spend my time with women than gay dudes than straight. I'll settle for the straight dudes. No offense. <laughs> I love it, yeah. And because I think women are the same in in a sense, mm. there's a similarity where there's an openness and a and a a vulnerability, mm. which you know, I would be hard pressed to to really tell you the difference between vulnerability and courage. Mm-hmm. I think they're basically two expressions of the same thing Mm -hmm. that women have shown me Mm -hmm. that gay men have shown me Mm -hmm. that very, very few straight men have ever shown me. Mm -hmm. A couple of things came to mind while you were talking about this. And first of all, you know, you're talking about having a lot of close friendships with gay men brought to mind this term coined by a writer named Eve Sedgwick that I came across, first of all, 
from um, well Grayson Perry, and then from him reading a book called Studying Men and Masculinities. The term is homosociality, which is just the ability of two same gendered people to have like a deep and close connection that perhaps also or or does you know exist on the continuum like somewhere on that continuum is homosexuality right to have a connection where there's intimacy and even affection right a feeling of you know like real closeness that isn't sexual but it's certainly far more intimate than you know brotastic chest bumping um or just your average kind of you know dudes at the bar or women at the nail salon right for another example um and i wonder if you felt that perhaps a bit with you know some of your these friends, these gay male friends, like this, like maybe it was easier to access this, you know, kind of intimate, affectionate connection because there wasn't what we've been kind of trained to feel the aversion to getting too close. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and I think, you know, in a way it reflects back on what we started talking about and you know how i suffer from an absence of trauma i feel like in a way that is reflected in this this thing with my gay male friends too mm. because like i have no I, I am how to say this without sounding like a shithead but like i'm really into women sexually and um i can appreciate beautiful men but i feel zero confusion or appetite to have a physical connection with gay men or with any man yeah um so i feel like in that sense there's a liberating quality to that right it's like i'm just that's just not there for me yeah which frees me up to be extremely intimate mm -hmm. with men because I'm not worried I'm going to slip over some imaginary line and, oh, my God, what's going to – maybe I'm really gay or maybe I'm bi or maybe, you know. And, and I think a lot – I think most people are more toward the middle of the spectrum, and so that is an issue. Mm. Um, mm. You know, and I'm sympathetic with that. I think that's one of the things that makes men – confused and and mm. and hesitant to mm. to get into these intimate areas with mm. with other guys because they don't know what's going to happen they don't know how they're going to react and mm. you know maybe they had some experiences when they were little boys and they're trying to forget that and they you know like there's a lot going on there but mm. <clears throat> yeah i've definitely felt in these relationships with with these guys like i mean you know, my best friend in college was a professor. Mm -hmm. And man, mm -hmm. I lived with him. We traveled together all the time. Mm -hmm. um, I People thought I was gay. People thought I was his lover. Of course you, they you've did. You've told me a little bit about this guy. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, and I actually, I never discouraged that uh, because he was just coming out. 
Mm-hmm. And he was very ashamed mm-hmm. and very damaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father just like did a number on him, and it was like so. Being with him and having people think that we were lovers, and and being like, I don't give a shit. It was healing for him. Yeah, yeah. And and I felt like that made me feel good. Like I'm giving this guy something. Yeah. I'm showing him he doesn't need to be ashamed. Yeah. I'm not even gay, and I'm not ashamed that people think I am. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and and he appreciated that, and we. You know, we had a really very deep, beautiful um, friendship that was intimate in every possible way except physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's beautiful. I, I really appreciate that. I think, well, just, you know, you mentioned like this kind of fear that, you know, maybe some hetero guys have that like that they'll slip up, so to speak, and like, oops, like, <laughs> you know, like, discover that how'd that dick get in my mouth (laughs) exactly (laughs) you know i mean maybe maybe that's a factor but but i think also that this concept of like a homosocial space for you know to use that term or just a space of intimacy and that can include affection like kind of opening that space for men and you know, can be very powerful. And like, that is a space that, yes, has not been inhabited very much at all Mm. for hetero guys in America, certainly, let's say. Just for me, getting more comfortable with like, you know, seeing a friend and like sitting with a friend, like with my arm around him or something like that, you know, expressing that and being in that space satisfies first of all like a, a a need a desire that really exists that that isn't a homosexual desire but that is a type of desire and a type of connection that we have denied ourselves and that we are hungry for i was watching um, nfl highlights you know i watched the highlights of the games okay and it's it's so interesting, and this isn't necessarily anything new, but I was just thinking about how it's one of the only things in American culture where you see men hugging each other. Yeah. Just fucking celebrating a touchdown. Totally. Like hugging, and you know, the big dude lifts up the smaller dude, and it's this whole physical celebration of, mm-hmm. you know, they put their arms around each other and rub them on the head and slap them on the ass and like, good right. job, buddy. And there's this camaraderie and physical expression of affection that you don't see anywhere else. And of course, it's in this hyper masculine, violent context. Yeah. Um, which is like the only place it's safe, right? It's like, we're not gay. We're fucking football players. Um, and it's absurd that it has to be framed that way. But I think in a way that's one of the pleasures of watching sports yeah. is seeing this unrestrained expression of love and happiness i mean i'm watching the world cup highlights too right fucking score a goal those guys are in a puppy pile totally there it's like when have you or i ever experienced that much fucking joy 
yeah. with a group of men. Like, I, I don't think I ever have. I, well, it's insightful. Yeah, I think you're right. That uh, probably hadn't occurred to me, you know, that a lot of, you know, that sports fans are experiencing this vicariously. Right. right? Well, we're experiencing also the, like, being in our bodies. Yeah. Well, like, watching sure. these guys sure. fall and roll and sure. so graceful and, like, yeah, you know, it. Our mirror neurons are tuning into this, and and you know, because when's the last time I rolled out of a fall like that? You know, yeah, thirty years ago, right? But also this open affection, yeah, and and celebration together physically. It's kind of like, oh wow, look at that, yeah. you know. And they're so in the moment, yeah. We scored a touchdown. We're 40 points behind, but we scored a touchdown. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. oh, 30 seconds of extreme bliss, you know? Right. <laughs> right. fucking crazy. It's like watching dogs, you know? They're so in the moment. It's it's cleansing in some way. Or kids, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Neither of which I want anywhere <laughs> near me, but well, in, I got that. In theory. I got that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> People sometimes ask me, you know, you know, you're going to get a dog, you know, like, you know, I think I've realized I'm just not really a dog person unless I live on a ranch somewhere where they can be outside and run around, you yeah. know, but living in the city. No, come on. Give me a break. Yeah. And probably the same thing for kids. You know, if I had grown up myself and lived on a 80 acres somewhere, you know, where kids can, you know, just be outside and kind of take care of themselves right you know maybe so yeah well it's i mean it's interesting a lot of these things i look at and i i think well if i were living the way humans are designed to live which you know obviously my bias toward that is a hunter-gatherer society then kids and dogs and all that is just part of the deal. That's just part of being, you know, the way we lived. Um, then fuck. Yeah, that would be great. And, and also, you know, would I have kids? I don't know. Uh, but I'd be fucking and women get pregnant and well, but who knows if there are kids, you know what I mean? Biologically and who cares, right? That's the beauty of the whole hunter gatherer thing. Um, but there would be kids around and we, like some of them more than others and we'd teach them and we'd protect them and we'd, you know, they would be part of our lives, but it wouldn't be this thing where it's like, Oh, you have a kid. Now you need to get that kid into fucking private nursery school and you need to do this and do that. And that kid needs a fucking iPad and Nikes and you got to play this game and the TikTok and the, all this bullshit. Like, I don't want to be locked into that bullshit world by way of a kid, right? Because it's not fair to have a kid and say, no, you can't have an iPad, you can't have Nikes, and you can't have TikTok, and you You can't go to a decent school. And you can't, like, do what all your friends are doing. Yeah, Yeah. sorry. No, we're not like that. Like, well. Yeah, no, it always seemed like kind of a bad deal to me. And, And although my own, you know, journey of not becoming a father, let's say, was pretty conflicted, a lot of the time, you know, and I, you know, tried to get married a couple of times, assumed I, you know, tried, you know, not really tried to get pregnant, but certainly was on the path to, you know, to having kids and felt like that would be, um, you know, an important part of my life, you know, so I felt a lot of, a lot of conflict about that. 
certainly it's also true that from the beginning you know i had a very clear sense that it's like wow you you know this is like if you choose this it's going to be very hard to be as free as i want to be right and that was also another thing that i was very clear on from early on that i you know i wanted to be free like whatever that means right yeah i mean the structure that we we've created for ourselves you know, it's it's very, very hard. You've got to dedicate your life essentially to taking care of your kids. I was listening to this interview yesterday with um, Seth Rogen, the mm-hmm. comedian. Yeah. And uh, they asked him if he had kids. And he's like, no, no, I don't think I want to have kids. You know, the way I look at it is, you know, if I don't have kids, maybe I'll feel bad about that mm-hmm. for the two or three months just before I die where it's like, God, it would be nice to have someone around to take care of me, whatever. But if I do have kids uh, and it's a mistake, I'm going to feel bad about that for 50 years. Right. You know? So he's like, huh? Well, if I make a mistake, I'd rather make the mistake of not having kids and be happy about that for 30 years or 40 years. And then like, Oh, the last few months it's a bummer, but mm. you know, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's like what we were saying about dogs and shit last night. It's like someone told me when I first started thinking about writing a book, and I guess it's a cliche, but they said you should never write a book unless you absolutely have to. Yeah. And I think that was true. And I think that way about kids. Yeah. You shouldn't have kids unless you really, really need to. Yeah, unless it's your top priority. Right. Your whole life is like, I want to be a good dad. I want to be a good husband. I want to give, like my dad had a fucked up childhood, fucked up parents. And his thing was, he met my mom and they were like, we love each other. We're going to have a couple of kids and we're going to give them a great life. Yeah. And they did. They, they did. That's exactly what they did. And I'm eternally grateful. It's interesting that that is often the motivation that I hear, you know, is that, well, I didn't have a great childhood, so I want to give that to my own kids. Right. Which is, you know, that's beautiful and nice, and it's also kind of dark, too. It's like, well, if that's the motivation, I mean, not to say anything about your father, you know, but just in general. Um, but it is kind of a feature of, again, the structure that we have. I mean, you know, you shouldn't have kids unless it's your top priority because, you know, you don't have a village of other people to help Especially take in America. Yeah. You're on your own. Yeah, you're on your own. Well, that's that is it, isn't it? So, have have you not felt yourself like any conflict, so to speak? What I have also, you know, enjoyed acknowledging, you know, more and more recently is like that I do feel some grief about not having kids. Yeah, and at the same time, like I'm quite clear that it it's not my top priority. I'm glad I don't have kids. Right. You know, I've got other kids around in my life, etc. But and I do feel some grief. Like I feel that loss and the, you know, that I don't have that experience as, you know, part of being a person. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, I've noticed that as I get older, grief becomes a constant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you get older, you have more friends who've died, more even not friends, you know, yeah. actors or, you know, musicians that were important to you. Like fucking Prince is dead. That still blows my mind, you know. Yeah. People younger than us who have died, you know. Yeah. Um, and in addition to those 
people who are gone, there's also the potential lives that you aren't going to live. Yes. Because yes. when you're 25, it's like, well, maybe I'll, I mean, in my own case, maybe I'll, I'll fall in love with a Dutch woman and I'll live in Holland. Right. Or maybe I'll fall in love with a Brazilian woman and, and I'll have this whole Brazilian life. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, maybe I'll fall in love with uh, some woman who's inheriting millions of dollars and we'll have some crazy private jet life. And, you know, there are all these potential lives ahead of you. Yes. And then you get older and your life is one. That's right. It's not seven. That's right. And even if that one is awesome. Yeah. And I have no complaints about how my life has turned out. It's just one. There's still the grief. Yeah. And so you grieve those possibilities that you realize like, oh, no, I'm not going to, you know, learn to play piano in my 20s and find that I have some incredible talent and, you know, become a musician like that's not on the table anymore. And, you know, it never really was, but it was a possibility. It was a fantasy of what could happen in my life. Yeah. And you get older and it's like it narrows. Yeah. Um, It's just not enough time. I mean, I've got a list of a hundred things yeah. that I would love to do. I mean, a hundred lives right. that I would love to live, right. you know, or have lived. And I've got a list of, you know, five easily that I could fill right now, contemporaneously, in parallel. Mm. You know, I mean, I'd love right. to, you know, live where I live in Sausalito. I'd love to live here in Crestone, who knows, for example. I'd love to be living on a sailboat, sailing around the world. I'd love to be walking around europe with my friend gulvin like golf right you know and a bunch of other things love to be with one woman and really deep and yes sincere and like a lifelong relationship i'd also love to have a different woman every year right (laughs) right all these possibilities yeah and you you just so it gets back to what we were saying earlier about letting go yeah right if you don't let go then you're just mired in grief for all yeah. the things that you've lost or never had in the first place. Yeah. And what kind of life is that? Yeah. You know? So no, I don't feel conflicted about kids any more than I feel conflicted about not falling in love with a Dutch girl and living in yeah. Holland and learning Dutch or, you know, any of these other possibilities that could have been that, that aren't. Let's just really enjoy what it is and not worry about what it isn't. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. And I, I guess, that, you know, for me, the allowing myself to feel the grief is is part of letting that go, right? Yeah. Um, and- yeah, I acknowledge that that having children is an incredible experience yeah. that I'm missing out on, no doubt. I'm not... I'm not denying it. Um, and, you know, I have friends who've had kids and it's like, God damn, I admire that. I really admire the the beauty of that experience. And I'm so happy for them that they've had it and that it's brought all this richness to their lives. And um, it's wonderful, but I don't envy it. Yeah, no, I don't envy it either. I'm always I'm reminded of that, you know, um, you know, when, when I get to spend time with my goddaughter and her sister and other friends, kids, and it's, you know, I really enjoy that. And then I'm, you know, also grateful for the, you know, the path that I've chosen. Yeah. Um, I think that's the key. You know, it's like if you 
if your life is worth having lived, then it frees you up from all these forms of regret, Yeah. right? If your life is just boring and you never really took any risks and you never really reached out for that moment that you wanted to have, that woman you wanted to be with, that job you were afraid to take, that journey you you really wanted to go on, you always wanted to go walk across Corsica, but you never did it. Right. Then you look at your life and you say, fuck, I didn't have kids. I wanted, I should have had kids. I didn't go on that trip. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Well, then that's the problem. It's not that you didn't have kids yeah. or that you didn't go to Corsica or that you didn't, you know. Yeah, become a helicopter pilot. Right. It's that you didn't do anything. Yeah. But if you did do something, if you did live a life that was full in whatever way it ended up being full, mm-hmm. then you can let go of the other stuff more easily. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to kind of zoom out on the topic of fatherhood and not having kids, certainly demographically, I don't want to really go down this road too much, but demographically, you know, people are just having fewer kids. And I am interested you know, as a man that doesn't have children in that phenomenon from, you know, from a man's point of view. And certainly there are lots of things out in the world, reasons why people are having fewer kids. You know, I, I do think part of it is all, also has to do with the, the resistance, let's say, to the kind of cultural models that we've inherited, you know, the the kind of standard model, what it means to be a man, right? which means, well, you're going to get married and have a couple of kids. And, you know, not having kids is a way of resisting that kind of patriarchal model. Yeah. And and I wonder how much of it comes down to economics too, right? Like that too. If you could if you could go down that path um realistically where you could have a job down at the factory and your wife could stay home and take care of the right. kids and, you know, if one income could support a family, which it did thirty yeah. years ago, yeah, um, I wonder how many people would would make different decisions around that. Yeah, so that's a question of sort of, you know, the 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 financial structure and foundation, but also from the point of view of like just what it means to be a man having a nineteen fifties nuclear family has been very much a part of that image, hmm. right? Certainly you and I both grew up with that baked in, or I, I did, you know, I I felt that strong enough that I pursued it very strongly for, you know, a couple of decades. And, you know, contrary to some of my other kind of essence, now people are resisting that. And, and you know, the question of what it means to be a man, a woman, a person, you know, is kind of getting blown wide open. And that, you know, well, you don't need to have a nuclear family or kids or get married necessarily or, you know, do a lot of these things that we assumed that one kind of needs to do to be considered an adult person. Uh, And I'm all for that. Absolutely. Yeah, I wonder, like, I sometimes think about how kids are like a clock on the wall and you can see the years going by as these kids grow up Mm -hmm. and because i don't have kids Mm -hmm. sometimes i forget how old i am Mm -hmm. and how many years have gone by and Mm -hmm. you know and so like one of my closest friends um you know he had three kids and it seems like they were born about five years ago but 
somehow they're in their twenties. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's like, wow. Like, ah, the only time I think about that, the only time that awareness enters my consciousness is when I'm talking to him and he says, mm. Oh, you know, Nikki's really happy getting married and you know, they're off on their honeymoon. I was like, what do you mean? He's on his honeymoon. He's seven. Like yeah. what? Yeah. And I know that's, you know, hackneyed and cliched and, you know, but it's true. It, it it's, they are this measure of the passage of time. And if you don't have those clocks on the wall, you don't really notice it. Mm. Or at least I don't. Yeah. That's for better and worse. You know, yeah. I mean, how old, like, I'm always interested in this question of like, how old are you? Uh-huh. Forget about your body and, and yeah. Mentally. And, and yeah. So when you think of yourself or was there an age was there an age when you remember sort of being like, yeah, this is me? Yeah. Until now, yeah. I was older than I seemed. And after that point, I'm younger than I seemed, you know? Yes, I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I often ask the same question, like kind of, when do you feel that you became the version of yourself that you are now? Well, yeah, or even just the the, the sort of the 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 perfect embodiment of this self yeah you know yeah it's almost like two images that kind of like come over each other and there's that moment where they line up perfectly it's like an eclipse right yeah, yeah you know yeah. and then they separate again that's uh, a nice image yeah yeah for me i mean i feel that it was fairly recent you know, I'm 52. Mm. I feel like I would say it was in my mid 40s, really. Oh, wow. Really? I feel like it was then that I, yeah, that I kind of woke up um, and began to feel more clearly myself. Mm. Um, certainly, like my physical self, you know, I, I feel more like 30 or so, although I'm more fit now than I was when I was 30, actually. Um, you know, thankfully I still, I feel pretty energetic and, um, kind of youthful in that way. Um, but yeah, my, my image of myself is, is, is like, it's pretty current. Hmm. It's pretty current. Interesting. I do often also identify though with my, like my teenage self, hmm. I'll say 16, 17, 18, 20, even, I mean, that was a, very rich time for me um psychologically i guess and um so that's another another really important time um but a lot of my years in between not that they were lost years you know not at all i mean i've had an amazing life and like my 20s and 30s and 40s were very rich in a lot of ways but and my sense of self and identity was you know i i felt something missing hmm. you know i really wasn't quite sure who i was and um I, you know i wasn't happy about that how about you when's when, when is that soup when did that superposition that eclipse happen for you mm, around 33 4 something like that I mean, in some ways, it was earlier than that. Yeah, I can remember being in Nepal uh, and just feeling like uh, I'd been traveling for a few years. 
And I, I just remember being in Nepal and just feeling like this is exactly where I need to be. Yeah. And I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing. And like, this is just right. Yeah. Um, and I had that feeling in different times, different places. Um, but I think for me, a big thing was also, I was in this relationship with um, this wonderful woman, uh, we were living in San Francisco. Uh, she's Spanish, and she came with me because I wanted to go to grad school. And I, I was living in Spain when I met her, and then I was like, "Oh, but I'm going to grad school." And she came with me, and she was just just fantastic. And uh, but I st I started feeling restless and like mm. and, and and getting like critical of her, and I've told this story before um but I, I was with this friend in a bar uh, uh toronado i think it was called oh man right. i know the toronado sir yeah yeah so we were sitting uh -huh. in there <laughs> and i was griping about her something that, about her that she had said or done and whatever and i was there eh. yeah and this friend who was a really sweet guy um he just sort of put his hand up and he said chris i'm sorry but I can't listen to you talk this way about her. She's the most amazing woman I've ever been in the same room with. And and I understood. I mean, I'll never forget that moment because he was simultaneously like trying to, you know, tell me what I sounded like and yeah. you know, ungrateful and I was so lucky. Um and I, I, that moment sort of triggered this cascade of realizations that ultimately uh, led me to understand that it was monogamy that was freaking me out. It wasn't her. There was no problem with her. Yeah. It was that I, for me, being with a woman in that kind of a relationship felt so restrictive. Mm. And that it made me really unhappy. And I didn't understand that because I had never conceived that there was any other possibility yeah. for a way to arrange a relationship that mm -hmm. didn't include that, right? But for me, it felt like saying, okay, you can, you can go to one country, any country you want in the world. But and, only that one. And then you're going to stay there the rest of your life. Pick one. Like, yeah. what? No. Yeah. You know, I had 50 stamps in my passport at that point. Right. And like, I can't pick one country. You can't take my passport. Yeah, yeah. And so that was a really important moment for me because ultimately it led to an experience that in some ways is similar to what I was referring to with the gay guys earlier where it's like, oh, I'm not by nature – monogamous sexually and if i cop to that nobody's going to want to be with me uh -huh. no woman's going to want to be with a guy right, that became a, a something that tempered you that challenge of coming out in that way because it was it was a moment of saying am i gonna you know there's a fork in the road on on one road is i'm true to myself but i might be alone the rest of my life mm -hmm. And the other fork is, I lie. Yeah, but I can get 
what I want and I'll lie and I'll cheat and I'll get stuff through the back door and mm-hmm. what everyone else does. Mm-hmm. Or just be in, yeah, in dissonance essentially. I mean, not being true to yourself, not being in alignment. Right. And if you're lying to yourself, then by definition, you're lying to everyone else, right? right. And I mean, that's the thing. People people think they're getting away with something, but eventually they realize you don't get away with anything because no. if you're not being honest about who you are, then that means that everyone who says they love you, mm. they don't know what they're saying because no. they don't know who you are. And you know that. You know that they said, I love you, but you know they don't know you. Right. So they don't love you. So you can't accept that love they're trying to give you. Yeah. It never lands. Yeah. So you're empty and alone your whole fucking life because no one can give you love because no one sees you Mm, yeah yeah well i'm I'm so glad you brought this in you know perhaps just as a last topic first of all it's just a beautiful thing that this friend of yours did he kind of said hey stop right like he didn't want to hear it he couldn't hear it he said you know i don't want to hear this from you right he was doing you a favor it was you know it it became a learning moment for you and a, a real opening it sounds like and you know, what came to mind for me is like my own experience kind of looking at the question of of monogamy and love and openness. And, you know, not in the quote open relationship sense of open, but just openness. I kind of grew up understanding that like when you make a declaration of love and just saying, Hey, baby, I love you, the key turns in the lock. Right. And it it means, first of all, that essentially you might as well be engaged, you know, because that means you're then on the path to forever. And it also, it means that you can't love anyone else, which seems crazy. You know, I mean, I don't even mean necessarily not, you know, having sex with anyone else, but it means that you can't love anyone else. Right. Coming to that realization that I've carried that with me for so long and that I'm, you know, just so tired of that and unwilling to to play by play that game anymore yeah Uh, yeah it's amazing how much bullshit we accept just because we we don't see any options i mean it's like the american political system right like you can vote for tweedledum or tweedledee there those are your oh you have a choice like (laughs) do i really like what kind of choice is this like okay you love someone you can't love anyone else but we don't feel that way about friends. Right. We don't feel that way about music. We don't feel that way about children. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, oh, if you have a second kid, you're going to love the first one half as much because you got to divide it up now. Like, mm-hmm. we don't, it, it makes yeah. no sense. And yet we just swallow it. Well, it just, it takes some, I mean, it's something that we've, you know, just in this era that we've been acculturated with as, and, and, and it, it doesn't mean that it's, universally and forever true and and so it's helped me to kind of digest that a bit and and um you know i've i've never myself been in like a non-monogamous you know modern like ethically non-monogamous situation i don't know if that's actually what i need but i do know that i need to you know for love not to be a closure Hmm. i mean my god it should be an opening Right. And, and I am working now to find a way to be with someone and in love 
and loving, you know, and open to, you know, to loving others in integrity. That for me is just where I'm at at the moment with this idea of openness. You know, I, I want to, I want to learn how to do that better. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's not about monogamy or non-monogamy or whatever. It's about authenticity. Yeah being who we are and being clear and unashamed and unapologetic about that. And that can change. Like, a, you know, we were saying before you let go of things, right? Like right. maybe in your twenties, you're feeling non-monogamous because you want to have as much different experience as possible. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you come to a different time in life. Maybe you're having kids, for example, or totally, maybe yeah. your parents are sick or maybe, you know, whatever, things change. And, you know, people come to me for relationship advice often. And I think because of who I am and, you know, sex at dawn and all that, they they come to me expecting me to right. advocate a particular approach to relationships, but I don't. The only approach I advocate is authenticity and honesty and sincerity and all that. And, and also compassion for where your partner's coming from, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but that can lead in many different directions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thank you. I appreciate all of that. And, and I also, I would add, you know, that to me, like relationship in whatever form should be a vehicle for growth and, and, and further openness. Right. Right. And expansion, let's say. For a vehicle for growth and expansion and learning, and that's what life is all about. Kind of realizing how much again this love as a closure, as like as a lock. You know, it's like okay, I love you. It's like okay, now we're in this little box, mm. you know, that's supposed to satisfy us forever. Of course, and we know how much of a fantasy that is. Right. Um, and so it really helps to. It's like oh, let's just open that box. My God, let's figure out how to do that. Well, maybe just to just to wrap here so before we uh, go off into the day, another favorite question of mine is: Is there something that you would like to do that you find yourself afraid of doing? You know, there there are, there are things I, I as a sort of intellectual exercise. Sometimes I I keep a list of things I wish I were cooler about. Yeah, you know, or ways in which I wish I were cooler. Mm -hmm. um, Me too. But it's not like I'm going to change it now. Yeah. It's just sort of like who I am. Like I wish I I enjoyed dancing more, mm. but I don't. And it's not really because I'm afraid at this point, you know, or I wish I were bisexual, mm. but I'm not. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish I were more adventurous in eating things, mm. but I'm not, you know, like... Um, you know, I wish I were more Anthony Bourdain-like as far as, mm. you know, oh, uh, sheep's brain cooked with, you know, fucking tarragon. See, that, to sure. me, that just seems like listening to yes, you know. I, but, uh, <laughs> but, but some things along those lines, have, I think that's a great way of reframing that. And, and, you know, something that I've learned from observing some of my close friends, you know, in recent years is like I would – I'd like to be more generous, mm. you know, I'd like to, you know, that's just a, you know, I really admire that and value that in others. And what's, you know, what's stopping you? What's the resistance? I don't know if there's a, well, that's a, that's a good question. You know, uh, 
I don't feel like there's anything stopping me other than kind of the self-awareness to, you know, kind of take the opportunity to be more generous when I have the opportunity to be generous. Um, but this is in my notes that, you know, I, I have become aware lately, probably right around this question of generosity, you know, what's the opposite is like taking, taking something. And I, I don't know why really, I don't know. I'm aware sometimes of feeling like kind of entitled to take a little something or just wanting someone to give me a little something, hmm. you know, and you know, it probably has to do with not getting enough of something somehow, you know, earlier in life. It's unconscious, but it, it's like there is part of me that has wanted to make up for a lack somehow, something that I was feeling, you know, somehow feeling lacking and kind of take it hmm. in, in some ways. And I, I know that's not pretty. You know, it's not pretty really, uh, but it's it's true. Maybe what you're feeling is <clears throat> like a sense of imbalance because I, I feel like flow, you know, energy flows through us. Yeah. And um, I kind of have the opposite dynamic in that I've always really liked giving things mm. um, and time and, and I have to be disciplined about not answering every email I get and not <clears throat> trying to help everybody who asks me for help. And, you know, cause it's just got overwhelming at a certain point <clears throat> and that hurts for me. That's a difficult, uncomfortable place to be. And I don't mean to come across as some kind of like holier than thou. It's just the way I have always been. Like I, I've always had this sense of like, I've been unfairly lucky mm -hmm. and in order to, address an imbalance i need to like shit needs to flow out away mm -hmm. from me yeah um otherwise i'm gonna sink with the weight of all this great stuff i've been given um and for me it was a real challenge to learn to accept mm -hmm. And I can remember actually mm -hmm. a particular conversation. I, this is when I was in New York City. I was in my mid-20s. I was working with this millionaire dude and we became good friends and we go out to dinner a lot. And, you know, I'd try to pay for half of the dinner and we're in some expensive restaurant in New York. And this guy was my boss. He knew exactly how much money I was making. And the first couple times he, you know, I insisted. And, uh, and then at what, some point he's like, Chris, you need to learn to accept a gift. Mm -hmm. You know, we came to this restaurant because I wanted to come here. I know you can't afford this. Yeah. It's silly. You're just going through the motions here. It's totally unnecessary. I can certainly afford this. You know, why are you, you're just making me uncomfortable. Just let me fucking pay for dinner, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I remember thinking, he's right. It's really hard for me to accept this, even though this guy pays my fucking, you know, salary, right. you know, it's like, there's no secret here about money and who has what and all that. Mm. Yeah. So for me, it's sort of the opposite, but I, I feel like the point is neither one of us is wrong or right. It's just, 
it's just things need to flow. Yeah. And so like the more you let go, the more comes and the more comes, the more you need to learn to let go. Cause otherwise, you know, it coagulates and you know, everything just needs to flow. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, it's, it's a fruitful topic and yeah, it needs to flow both ways, you know, and, and I, I mean, I love giving and being generous as well. And I love when people ask me, you know, for, for, for time or in particular for time or advice or, you know, or just to do something, can I help them with, with something? I, I love that. And, and, and people do a lot, certainly with me in particular, like in the realm of sports, you know, people are always asking me about kite surfing or paragliding mm. or, you know, right. you name it. It's great. So it's just something I've been more aware of lately. Yeah. Like wanting to be more generous and, and being aware of when I feel kind of inclined to, to take. And I think there's probably a reframing of that for me in like being able to ask. I mean, it just occurs to me, even just me showing up here, you know, to record with you, I didn't bring my recording set up. It would have been a little bit of a pain to travel with it. And I'm not doing a whole bunch of interviews on the road and whatever, but also because I knew that, well, you'd have recording gear and like between, and Anthony's got some, you know, we, there's enough gear around. It's like, right. You know, but that's a little bit of an ask. Yeah. You know, is it? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I, I feel like we, we, how do I say this? It's like, we feel weak because a muscle is growing. Yeah. So in a purely physical sense, you know, you do a workout you haven't done for a while, your body hurts. But that's not because your body's weak. It's because your body's getting stronger, right? And so maybe this thing you're saying like, oh, I feel like I take too much. Maybe what that is, is your hyper awareness of that particular aspect which is a sign that you're actually a very generous person to the point where it bothers you. You're hyper aware of anything that isn't in alignment with the generosity, right? So like it wouldn't occur to me that that's an imposition. You coming to my place, assuming I've got recording gear. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> because you do, right? Yeah, we do. know that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've got lots of, rec- I got like 19 microphones in this tiny room we're sitting in. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it makes sense to use that stuff. You know what I mean? Of course. Why should you worry about it? Yeah. 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 Well, but but the fact that you frame it that way in your head yeah. is like, uh, that's, that's you. That's not yeah. an objective analysis of the situation, I would say. I, I feel, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I think it's also, you know, just something, or for me, again, I'm, yeah, it's certainly me. Something that comes up, you know, perhaps between men also for me, you know, this dynamic of who's giving, who's getting, whose stuff is it, you know, right? like who's to whose benefit is this? Th- that sort of thing right. and and you're right it is just a a place where uh, that i'm something i'm paying attention to and is a you know an area of of growth yeah it's a muscle that's growing yeah uh, you know getting back to this breath metaphor mm. i feel like the first 40 years of my life was an inhalation mm-hmm. and somewhere around 40 uh pretty much when sex at dawn came out and i became 
whatever public figure, whatever I am, Mm -hmm. that was the beginning of an exhalation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's great because I felt like during the, I was very conscious of how much I was taking Mm -hmm. and receiving. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, and I can remember people saying to me, don't worry, the, mm-hmm. you know, the time will come, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to give it back to me, mm-hmm. but you'll give it to someone and that's the way it should work, right? It's not, you don't owe me anything, mm-hmm. but you do owe something to the, you know, celestial bank account that these funds are coming out of, you know, and, and so I think there's like a, a piece that comes from like, almost like a karmic settling of accounts you know like i've received a lot and i've given as much as i could and hopefully in the end the the ledgers equal out you know yeah yeah well yeah somewhere somewhere they do for sure somewhere they do i I also feel very uh full able to give when right people come to me and and to bring it back to the conversation about kids mm-hmm. not having kids means you're able to be generous to a lot more people yeah i mean both financially and with time and with energy and love and so on i think a lot having kids like it focuses yeah so much of what you can give you're giving to that person or those people mm-hmm. whereas if you don't have kids you can have students, you can have readers, you can have friends, you can, right. you have time for your community. You, you know, there's, you've got a lot of juice. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really feel that I, I do. And I think that is, you know, more unconsciously early on, but certainly now I'm very conscious of, of that as, you know, part of the reason that, that I you know, don't have kids and chose not to is to have a, a, a wider world. Right. Yeah. So you should, you know, just pick up hitchhikers and invite them to come and live in your houseboat with you and <laughs> pay for their college and, right, you know, right. buy them some shoes and stuff. Well, there's, there's someone staying there now while I'm away. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Well, Chris, this has been such a pleasure to speak with you and, and you've been very generous with your time. And, and my microphones. And your microphones. Exactly. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. It's been fun. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please have a look at the questions that I've posted at the bottom of the show notes and leave a comment with your own thoughts on what we discussed in the episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe, recommend, share, and comment all right at the bottom of the page at decidenothing.substack.com where all of my writing and audio lives, or in whichever podcast app you might be listening with. Just a reminder that anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. Thanks again so much for being here, and I hope you tune in to Brothers and Teachers again soon.